Welcome back to Gems with Genesis Amaris Kemp. With me today is Milagros Phillips, and her pronouns are she, her, and hers. And here's a bit about Milagros. Milagros Phillips is a keynote speaker, TEDx speak, presenter, four times author, and certified coach. She designs strategic learning programs for organizations seeking to enhance their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives through race literacy. Her programs use history, science, research, and storytelling to create compelling, life-transforming experiences. For more than 35 years, Milagros has consulted, designed, and facilitated programs across many industries. She is an artist, a Reiki master and teacher, a sound therapist, teacher of a course in miracles, and the creator of Race Demystified, a compassionate approach to healing from racial conditioning. Her latest book, Cracking the Healer's Code, a prescription for healing racism and finding wholeness, will be out in August. Milagros is a recipient of the 2021 New Thought Walden Award for Interfaith intercultural understanding. And without further ado, let's welcome Milagros Phillips. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Genesis. I'm really excited about our conversation. Likewise, and thank you for carving time out of your day to just come have a coffee chat style conversation. And listeners and viewers, today we're going to talk about healing from racial conditioning. And Milagros is going to tell us what does that look like? How can we move the needle forward? As well as unpack some really insightful things that we could begin to take and apply in our industries and our life personally and professionally. So Milagros, when, we, when you think about healing from racial conditioning, what are your pillars around that? Well, the first thing is um, defining racial conditioning because for the most part, you know, we, we deal with, with this, this historically grounded thing called racism that actually is the birth child of race, which is a myth, <laughs> you know? So we are dealing with the reality of something that came out of a myth. So, so let's just start with that. <laughs> that's, that's enough for us to unpack, right? And, and then the, the realization that that myth came out of what was institutionalized at its time. So we're talking, the early 14, early mid to late 1400s in Europe and what was going on there. And, um, you know, and, and, and so really race and racism are the condition that was created by what was institutionalized at the time that allowed for people to be colonized and all the things that, that happened and the middle passage and everything else and how we have been living in this continuum for over 600 years and no one ever teaches us the actual history of this stuff you know no one gives us the context and so a lot of i, I remember you know because because i'm i i'm 
I'm sure I'm old enough to be a grandma, but <laughs> I'm going to say this, okay? And that is that I remember spending a great deal of my life thinking that there was something wrong with me. Like, what is, like, how come I can't make stuff work? You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I've done, I've gotten the education. I, you know, raised, the, like, I've done all of the stuff that you were, quote unquote, supposed to do. And it just seemed like something just wasn't clicking until I realized that it really wasn't me. It was the rest of the world. <laughs> you know that saying, it's not me, it's the rest of the world. It really wasn't me. It was the rest of the world, you know, because we have all been so conditioned into this thing that, into the myth of race, which leads to, you know, racism. Um, and, and the way that, that even the way that the racism is uh, presented is always presented as if racism was a black problem. Uh, you know, racism is a problem for people of color. It is not the problem of people of color. <laughs> that is not our problem. We have other situations that we, that came out of our need to survive under some very difficult conditions. But that is once removed from the dysfunction. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. And then another thing, as you were talking about that, that I've seen, because I'm first generation American, and I've seen them, whenever you look like you and I, Milagros, if you then add in the fact that your parents are immigrants or foreigners, then you're treated a different way in comparison to someone who is African-American colored or melanated that was born in the U.S. They look at you differently. Yeah, yeah, they do. And my children are first generation American from my side because I was born in the Dominican Republic and I was pretty much raised there. I was 10 years old when I came to live in New York City. And the reason that I came here is one of the reasons that people come to this country, whether they came on the Mayflower, unless you were you came here as an enslaved person, right? Everybody else who came here, came here because there were issues where they were. You know, like the Europeans that got on that Mayflower, a lot of them were ignorant thinking that the world was flat. You know what I mean? But they were willing to risk their lives and fall off the face of the earth because they needed to get out of Europe so badly because of, you know, there was no freedom. Like, so there was no religious freedom because if you weren't specifically Catholic, um, you know, you were subject to being part of the, what they call the Spanish Inquisition, but really that Inquisition was going on all over Europe because they were trying to turn everyone who was not Catholic into Catholic, right? And so that meant that if you were a Jew, an Islam, a Hindu, um, and if you were a Christian who was not necessarily Catholic, your life was always in danger. Then you have the reality that there was no sanitation. So there was a lot of illness and diseases. The Europeans carried a lot of illnesses and they spread them all over the world, wherever they, um, you know, wherever they colonized. Um, you have uh, rampant um, starvation and uh, malnutrition because you only have about three months to grow your food. And the rest of the time you have to figure out how you're going to survive, especially if you don't have a place where you can store grain and you can you know, take care of yourself and your family and your community. And, um, and, and then you'll have this constant threat to your life because you, you, know, you were not of the right religion, right? 
And so people were desperate to get out of there. So when Columbus went back from Quisqueya, also known as La Española, also known as the Dominican Republic, when he went back to Europe after he took that trip to find India, and he took some Tainos with him who were the natives that lived on Quisqueya to prove that he had made it to India, you know. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so when he went back, um, very quickly word spread that there's gold in them, their islands, okay, and in their, their places, right? It, so we're talking the late 14, 1493 was when he, he went back. And as you know, the European monarchies were all related, they still are, right? And so word spread like wildfire that, you know, here's this guy that just came back with gold, silver, precious metals, food, tons of food, right? Um, and and that he you know and he also brought back tainos uh, with him and only about the, they estimate that he took about a hundred tainos back with him but only about six or seven actually made it to the other side the rest died um, on the ocean but you know but but I'm saying all this to say that yes um, you know there are people that come to this country but for the most part the people who have come to this country come to this country because there wasn't a picnic where they were. And that it, it doesn't matter if it was the Mayflower or today, you know what I mean? Like people um, come to this country for um, for refuge and they migrate. People migrate all over the world. They always have from the beginning of time migrated because of natural disasters, because of wars, because of famine, because you know what I mean? And so you know, uh, housing so insecurity, true. yeah, housing insecurity, food insecurity, those are the reasons that people leave their their native lands to go to other places. And we treat people as if they didn't deserve to be here. But it's like people are coming here for the same reason that they came, you know, hundreds of years ago. Exactly. And some people, they go from just, you know, the surviving mode to wanting to thrive. And I feel like, whenever people don't really understand what was going on in their country or they don't understand their culture or their backgrounds, then they begin to project their insecurities onto that individual and then onto that racial group. And then you see a lot of turmoil starting to come about. And another thing that too, that I've noticed with um, racism, uh, racism and et cetera, they don't like whenever there is an interracial couple. And I'm speaking from my own family because my sister's kids are biracial. My brother's kids are biracial. My other brother, his um, child is truly African-American because our mother is from Cameroon and etc but whenever you see the different dynamics in the family structure you get these weird looks you get these sly remarks and snarky and I'm like why does it take all of that? We are all human beings. If each one of us gets cut, we're all going to bleed red. The only thing on that makes us different is our outward appearance. So how can we really push the narrative forward and you know denounce the ignorance because there are so many people out here who are ignorant they feel like it's my way or the highway then those people are the ones that get inside of these corporations and it makes it hell on earth for people who are just wanting to get a decent job 
provide for their family and have a comfortable lifestyle until they build their own stuff up on the side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really important for organizations today. Um, so everybody's right now. Everyone's talking about DEI. Everyone's doing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they <laughs> think equity like it was equality. You know? Yes. It is not. And and I I just did a talk about this the other day, and I said, you know, any organization that is serious that is serious. I'm not talking about the check the box people because there's a lot of those, okay? <laughs> I came from one of those. Yeah. And, you know, but but any organization that is serious about wanting to really change the dynamics in their organization when it comes to this issue of race really needs to make sure that they're um, that everyone from the CEO to the board members to to the person who sweeps the floors in the organization, that everyone is race literate. Because if people are not race literate, you're gonna get, you're gonna continue to get the same stuff that you're getting today and that, that people have been getting in organizations, which is are these micro macroaggressions where people say things that are um, that are very aggressive in their nature. And they don't even realize that they're doing that because it's so natural to them because they speak the language of supremacy. And in the language of supremacy, that's the way they refer to people of color. And so, so to them, it's like, I'm not a racist, you know, so you, you say, they'll say something and somebody will say, well, that was really racist of you. I'm not a racist. And they become very defensive uh, when in reality, what they said was racially charged, but because they speak from the language of supremacy, they don't even realize they're doing it. Like an example of that would be, oh, I'm not racist. I have I have a black friend or I have black friends. And I'm like, just because you have a black friend or black friends does not mean that your connotation of the entire black population is acceptable whenever you make certain comments. Whenever you make a comment like that, think about your black friend or your black friends and how are they going to feel whenever they hear you say something like that so if you're not going to be comfortable to say it around your black friend or your black friends then it's not acceptable and if you're saying it behind closed doors and not in the open it's not acceptable because you know down down there that it's wrong but you just keep on doing it and you don't see any anything wrong with it until somebody confronts you and then you're pinned up against the wall, metaphorically speaking. Or another thing that I heard was after the whole Black Lives Matter movement and the whole George Floyd incident, that's when some of these organizations, and I'm speaking from experience because I spent 12 years in oil and gas and energy, which is the good old boys club ran mm -hmm. by Caucasians, white males, that they said, oh, well, we're diverse, we're, we're equitable, we're inclusive. But then whenever you go back and look at your ERGs, when you go back and look at your salary treatments for people of color, and you really go back and uncover some of the things, you realize that the sliding scale was not fair. You realize that there was more work that needed to be done because you ran it as a check the box to showcase your shareholders that, oh, well, we've met our quota. We have this amount of Latinos, this amount of Latinos, this amount of Asians, 
this amount of African-Americans are black, this amount. And then you just moved on because you met your quota. When in actuality, when you hire those individuals, how are you promoting those individuals? What were their salaries like in comparison to their colleagues, especially if they're doing the same amount of work as their colleagues? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's so many other layers that go that get involved with it. And I feel like some of these organizations only jumped on the bandwagon after the George Floyd incident, in my opinion, because you already knew there was a problem with diversity, equity, equality and inclusion because a lot of people like you said milagros definitely forget about equality so i say you have to think about e squared equity and equality e squared and i feel like you guys are only doing it because of the money that is tied to it you're not doing the real work because look the george floyd incident is now gone the black lives matter movement has suppressed and what are the organizations doing a lot of those organizations actually laid off a lot of minorities so you want to talk about diversity equity and inclusion you just made this big old front but now you're laying off these same people that you talked about mm -hmm. helping have yeah. you witnessed that yeah that that goes on that's been going on forever like for instance i know that when a black woman turns right around 48 even if she's worked for an organization for years and years and years somehow they manage to lay her off and and they'll hire some new person young person with whom they can pay less money and so on and so forth and then these women have a hard time getting a job brilliant well-educated but you know, it, it is what it is, right? The thing about uh, this whole equity thing, and, and, and as you said, people jumping on the bandwagon and, and using, um, you know, using the words, right? Like putting the right letters together to, to make it sound like they're doing something is that it, you know, in, to, to, be, to be really, good at doing this diversity work in organization, doing it. I've seen organizations do this work in a way that really works. Um, one of the first people, the first sets of people that they educate are their leaders. Because when the leaders become um, educated around equity, around race specifically, because that's the one subject out of all the, the diversity and all the subjects covered under the EEO laws, the ones that people seem to struggle the most with is race. And, and that's across the board. And so when you get an organization that really is honest and really wants to do the work, the first thing they do is they get their leaders um, trained. And they get their leaders trained because they are um, they're aware that if the leaders get it, the rest of the organization will follow. That's why they call leaders so that other people can follow them. And so it's really important for them to do that. Um, and you know, it's um, you know it's, it's it's work right for an organization. It really is work, but it's work that's doable, and it's work that can be done. If they commit to it, they really can do this work. And it's so well worth it because, you know, it impacts their bottom line. You know, organizations that do race work, it impacts their bottom line in a really positive way. And so it's absolutely well worth doing. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like people who vote against their, their real desires just not to vote along with Black people. 
Like they'll vote against their own interest to not vote alongside black people or, or whoever black people are voting for kind of thing, right? It's the same, that happens in organizations as well. They know that it's good for their bottom line, but it feels to them like, well, that's helping black people. So they'd rather compromise the bottom line than to get their people trained, really well-trained and really invest. And that's the other thing a lot of organizations don't do is, is genuinely invest in their DEI departments. They don't necessarily want to put money behind it. And that's really sad and disheartening because if your employees feel valuable, if they feel like they're just not a number to the corporation, if they feel like, oh, not only am I being seen, but I'm also being heard, they're going to want to really put in the work. They're going to want to stay with the company and grow and et cetera. But you can't expect the people at the bottom to influence change if the people at the top are not meeting them halfway or if the people at the top are spitting out this rhetoric, but they're not walking it like they're talking it because then there is a big communication gap. There is a big oversight and undersight and there are so many holes that are in the square <laughs> yeah. it's kind of how I like to say it. and then these companies right now one of the biggest things that they're facing right now is the great resignation but who caused the great res resignation you have to ask yourself who caused that mm -hmm. absolutely yeah yeah people are waking up and they're going you know especially after having spent so many months at home because of the pandemic, um, they're going, oh, people don't want to go back to work because at first it was, they don't want to go back to work because they're making so much money on unemployment. And it, it, I don't believe it was that. People woke up to, wow, I don't, I like being home with my family. I like, you know, um, this kind of work schedule where I have a little bit more freedom and things like that. That's what happened. It wasn't that people don't want to go back to work. When you make a work environment, something where people want to wake up in the morning and go to, people want to get up in the morning and go to, you know what I mean? But if, if your work environment doesn't allow for any kind of freedom and, and really encroaches on people's freedoms, then your employees are not going to be happy and they're going to be all looking for a way out. Like most people today are looking for what can I do so I don't have to spend the rest of my life doing this, right? And as you said, you know, the, the you know, just being aware of who caused that, right? And, and, and that brings me to a, a slightly different subject. And that is, you know, how often people talk about how, immigrants are coming here and taking their jobs oh yes that's a all the time well you know immigrants didn't take white people's jobs they don't have the power to do that who took your job are the people who have the money the resources and the power to take your job and send it overseas so they can make a bigger profit that's who took your job not black and black and brown people because black and brown people don't have the power to take anybody's job because they're usually not the ones doing the hiring 
And that is so factual. And I want to stay there for just a little bit, and then we'll jump back into some solutions for healing ra uh, racial conditioning. So one thing that um, happened when I was working for this Fortune 500 oil and gas company, I worked there from 2013 up until February this year, 2021, when I got laid off. And I only got laid off because I spoke up in the vice president of supply chains meeting after the whole George Floyd incident. I told my stance of personal racism as well as professional racism. Then um, just so I'm just going to put context around it so it makes sense. And after I spoke up, not only was my classification level raised from a 15 to a 22, but they gave me a $20,000 pay increase because I was underpaid for so long in comparison to my white colleagues, non-melanated people. And one thing that they did was like, oh, well, we're going to bring some jobs back here. Um, we're not going to be sending jobs to the business support centers or et cetera. Then it was like a light switch flip. Then you start seeing that they were laying off all these people and they were outsourcing these jobs. But these are the same people that were on the bandwagon with the previous president. And this is not about politics here, people, because I don't discuss politics. But I'm like, you want to talk about how you want to bring jobs back. But then whenever something is affecting your bottom line and you want to you're more concerned with the profits that you make versus how you're treating your people, then you start cutting those people who have aided you in making those profit, then you pull away their livelihood and you take that and diversify it and outsource it offshore to business support centers. You take them out, out of the country, but yet you wanna talk about, oh, let's make America great again. Let's do all these amazing things to keep the money in our forefront. But then yet your actions are showing something else. And you just took away someone's salary. You took away their livelihood, especially whenever you think about males who work in oil and gas. A lot of times their wives are homemakers because the husband makes a large sum of money where the wife has the luxury to stay at home and not work. So you took away his salary. When his salary is gone, how is his wife going to take care of their children and et cetera? Or what about the single mother who's working in oil and gas and you take away her livelihood and you outsource her job? Then what happens to that woman, especially if she's at a certain age where now ageism is a factor and she can't go out there and find another job and, you know, she's spent all her time working in this industry. Now she has to learn how to pivot. Now she has to learn, okay, what type of skills yeah. do I have? And how are those skills transferable? So what you said is so factual because I have seen that happen firsthand and it is not a pretty sight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yet people will go on television and on every, you know, and talk about how, you know, these immigrants took away my job and it's like no they didn't they don't have the power to do that <laughs> you know the the po folks who can who actually created the organizations and have the the resources and the money and everything else they're the ones that sent your job overseas it's got nothing to do with these people coming in you know and so it's it's the the speaking truth to people and you know some will hear it and some won't because they're just not ready to hear it and because they have hung their belief system on something faulty. And to say something different would mean that they were wrong. And people don't like to be wrong. 
And so they, they would rather hang on to something, to a belief system that doesn't serve them. Because as, as long as you're believing that those people took your job away, you're not working on what you should be working on is, you know, seeing what you can negotiate with these organizations so that you can maintain your job here. Not looking at, you know, the immigrants that are just coming in because they don't have any power, you know, but these people have power. So those are the ones you need to go after and negotiate with and talk to about how to get your jobs back, right? Uh, which I doubt that they're gonna bring back to this side of the world because it's expensive to live here and it would mean higher wages and everything else. Not, the, not that they can't, but they're not very likely to do that. And it's really sad because if you think about the way that society is going right now, Milagros, the cost of living is going up, the cost, and that's across the board from yeah. what we pay, what some people pay in rental, oh, and whether I, they're. I just heard from um, a friend of mine who um, her best, her one of her best friends, her rent just went up $500. That's and a the, huge jump for somebody it, with family. It is a huge jump because you think about the apartment. Some people are living in apartments because they're not in a position right now where they could financially own a home. Mm -hmm. And then you think about the cost of groceries have went up, gas prices, and so many other factors have went up, but yet people's salary are not increasing to match the standard of living. So then you guys look at some people and you know, specific groups and you're like, oh, they're lazy. They want to live off the government. They want to live off of welfare. Well, sometimes some people just need a little help until they could build themselves up and establish themselves. And it's not necessarily that everyone within a certain racial group is trying to live off the, the government. There are some people who are middle class who they make too much to qualify for government assistance and they make too less to afford certain things that they need. So that that is also a problem as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so now here we are in this predicament. Racial conditioning, systemic racism, all of these things that are just compounding upon one another. But what can we do to open the eyes of those who sit at these tables and make these decisions and not even think about the outcomes of other people who are non-African-Americans or non-Blacks, because it does affect other racial groups. It affects Hispanics, it affects um, Asians, it affects so many other people that are classified as minorities, but you feel like the target is only maybe African-Americans or Hispanics, when it, in actuality, it's all of those who are non-white people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's basically it. So the, the first thing is that you can't make other people anything, you know, that's a huge waste of our energy. The best that we can do is work on our own healing so that when we show up to the table and we show up to these different things, we bring a different countenance, we bring a different uh, level of self. And, uh, and it's a level of self that people can hear, because sometimes when we are so angry, People can't hear what you're saying because they're so focused on your anger. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. so that's why we do the healing work. And the healing work is also um, so that uh, people can become aware that there's nothing wrong with them. It's just that, um, you know, they've had things happen to them or happen to their lineage because 
trauma gets passed on from one generation to another. And, um, and so they may be having a difficult time getting their lives where they want their lives to be, but it isn't because there's anything wrong, is that they're, they're still dealing with the, the psycho-emotional uh, things that their families never healed. Then they're, he they're dealing with their own childhood trauma and everyday trauma of just you know living as a person of color in, in a supremacist society. And so self-healing and self-awareness is really important. If people are serious about wanting to heal from racism, they need to become race literate. They need to understand what race is, where it comes from, how it's maintained, and all those kinds of things. We think we know, but there's a lot of information that it doesn't get shared with us, and so we don't really know, and, and people don't know what they don't know. Um, it's also important to, along with becoming race literate, to learn techniques that help you self-care, like uh, you know, learning breathing patterns that can um, add to the coherence of your mind and your heart. Um, understand that when you talk about race with some people, particularly if you're a person of color and you want to have a conversation about something that just happened that was racially charged with a white person, remember that the moment you mention the word race to them, if it's not affiliated with a car race or a horse race, you know, what I mean? uh, the moment you say race, you trigger their stress response. So it's fight, flight, or paralysis. They either want to defend what they just said or did. They want to flee, you know, like they don't want to be around this anymore, or they become paralyzed. And it's like, you know, you're, you're talking to them and, and you can look in their eyes and it's like there's nobody home you know because like their spirit left because they don't want to have this conversation so just being aware of that like you know there's not a whole heck of a lot that you can do about that um but it's important for you to be able to speak truth to power and to do it in a way that is compassionate because the reality is that they too have been traumatized and their trauma uh, goes way back before colonization which is what allowed them to do the stuff they they did through colonization. And so, um, and, and also realizing that even, and especially perpetrators are just as traumatized as the people that they traumatized. And we never really talk about that. And the thing that perpetrators need to know is that you didn't just traumatize yourself by what you just did to that other person but you also traumatize your entire lineage. Now you just traumatize your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-great-grandchildren, on and down the line. Because it's generational. It's generational, absolutely. And we know that now through epigenetics and everything else. And so, um, and also for people of color to understand that um, that our, our trauma has been decontextualized because no one has really taught us the history of that trauma. Like we know about slavery. We know about those kinds of things. We know about the places that were colonized and now people were enslaved, but we don't always talk about the fact that we're still carrying that trauma from, from, you know, trying to survive in, in these, these incredibly horribly violent environments. So Part of healing is, you know, um, whites and people that don't have a whole lot of melanin need to to take responsibility for for the very violent, violent history that they that they uh, perpetuated throughout the world, and 
people of color need to realize that they too need to heal from how the the survival patterns that they developed in order to be able to survive in these very violent situations so everybody needs to heal you know this isn't a just those people over there or those people over there and the other thing to remember is you can't heal another person everybody has to show up for their own healing and and do the the inner work that is required for you to um you know not just become aware of of what these patterns are and how those patterns take shape but also excuse me to become aware of the fact that you can heal it that um this isn't something that is terminal right people can change and people can transform but you not have to understand what, what it is that you're transforming from and, and what it is that you're changing from and i highly recommend people get uh, my latest book i have four books um 11 reasons to become race literate eight essentials to a race conversation speaking race in healthcare and my latest book is cracking the healer's code a prescription for healing racism and finding wholeness and i wrote that book because that book has the 13 layers of healing that are universal and that people can apply not just to the healing of racism but to the healing of families healing of communities healing of organizations and so it's um it's a very universal and and i break it down so that it's easy for people to grasp and and uh, it also gives um a lot of the history that people need to understand um you know what is happening with them what has happened to them that has caused certain behaviors in them. So, yeah, so. And thank you for sharing that Milagros and thank you so much for spending your time here talking about healing from racial conditioning, talking about some of the other things that are interwoven in between of that and for putting out your literary works out there because those books are, sound phenomenal. And I would, I would love to see organizations pick those books up and have like a book club around it and really drive some conversations, especially in ERGs, like employee resource groups, that would be a great place to have some of those books and et cetera. And as we wind down, I want you to leave the listeners and the viewers with one or two gems and then close us out with once again, who you are, how they could connect with you on social media and et cetera. Mm. Yeah, so uh, my my biggest gem to everyone is become race literate, uh, because once you understand, really understand the history of race, which goes way beyond the civil rights movement, way beyond slavery, once you understand how and why people did the things that they did, and, and you begin to unpack that, what happens is you start peeling away the layers, and you start to find yourself, and you start to find your own liberation, and your own power, and you're able to uh, accomplish things in your life that you didn't think you could accomplish before. So that would be my jam. If anyone wants to know more about my work, they can check out my website, which is www.milagrosphillips.com, which is my name. Um, and they can also find me on Facebook. They as um, Facebook, um, it's the Race Healer on Facebook, as well as Race Healer on Instagram. Um, please join my Instagram page. We'd love to have you um, part, be part of that as well. Um, and, and join me in the classes. In fact, um, I have a two day intensive that I do, um, just a, once a year, sometimes a couple times a year. And it's powerful. You, people just, they rave about it. I've been doing it for 20 years and people say they never see race the same way again. And so it's, um, it can make a huge difference in your life. So 
Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. My pleasure, Milagros, and thank you so much. Listeners and viewers, you just heard Milagros Phillips here on GEMS. She dropped some amazing nuggets regarding um, healing from racial equity. Make sure you tap in with her. All of her contact information will be in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe to GEMS with Genesis Amaris Kemp on audio platform as well as on the YouTube channel so you can never miss any of the amazing content. And until we chat next time, peace, love, and lots of blessings. Remember you are a masterpiece. You are here for a purpose and stop playing it safe. Step outside of your comfort zone and run your own race.